Hello, and welcome to RX Chill Pill. Meditate your brain to resilience. Resilience is about bouncing back from setbacks to a place higher than before by learning and adapting so you can thrive through life's challenges. Your time is precious, so I work to deliver research-backed tools to boost you and your family's resilience. Each of the episodes strive to leave you with an action or meditation prescription that you can apply immediately to your life. I'm Dr. Juna Bobby, a board-certified physician and mom of two amazing kids, and my purpose is to make the neuroscience of wellness accessible to you and your family's everyday life. My almost decade-long experience teaching high-performing students of all ages have now led me to the creation of my newest courses, Brain Boss Planner and Digital Course for K-12, through and the RX Chill Pill Digital Course and Planner for Stress Management and Resiliency Training for High School and Beyond, as well as for healthcare workers, educators, and parents. I'm so excited to say that they've already been a great success in their beta versions, so please email me at info at mindbodyspace.com if you're interested or if you know an organization that would be interested in participating in this early rollout phase. Love is the attempt to form a friendship inspired by beauty. Marcus Cicero. Isn't that an amazing quote? And happy Valentine's Day to you. I have to say I really miss those days when my kids were little and we would fill out all those little tiny valentines and put some candy in and think of every single classmate that they had. Those were very sweet days. And I'm a little nostalgic, so I'm really lucky that I get to have John Berger here today to cheer me up and give us some pearls from his new book. John is an award-winning magazine writer and author of two dating books, Datanomics, How Dating Became a Lopsided Numbers Game, and most recently, Make Your Move, The New Science of Dating and Why Women Are in Charge. John is a former senior writer at Fortune, and he was named by Always On Network onto the list of power players in technology, business, media. He's also a familiar face and voice on television, radio, and podcasts with appearances on ABC's Good Morning America, BBC World Service, Girls Gotta Eat, CNBC, CNN, MSNBC, National Public Radio, and much more. I really enjoy John's take on love and dating because he's not your traditional self-help guru. He's actually a finance analyst and so he loves data. So he gives you real facts and opinions based around statistics. He also gives us some really interesting insight into relationships in the digital age. I just wanna add that his audience is very specific and he was answering a very specific question because that's how books get published these days, I'm told. But whatever your relationship situation is, you're gonna get some really cool insight out of this conversation. Hey John, how are you? Hey Juna, how's it going? Good, thank you so much for being here today. I'm excited. <laughs> So your special relationship episode for Valentine's Day coming up. And I love the title of your new book. Yes, the, 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 it's Make Your Move, The New Science of Dating and Why Women Are in Charge. And the, um, the, the little known secret of the book publishing world is that authors don't generally get to choose their titles. Uh, or, or they're kind of heavily, uh, you know, heavily monitored, essentially. So I, I actually did not pick the title of my first book. This one, um, actually, a friend of mine, another author, came up with the Make Your Move title. And fortunately, everybody at my publishing house loved it. So I'm, I'm actually happier with Make Your Move than I was with Datanomics. Your first book was heavily focused on statistics. I love uh, hearing about facts, and I know you're a numbers person, right? Because you started out 
as a financial writer or you yeah I, I, I covered uh investing and oil and gas and super boring <laughs> stuff like that at fortune uh -huh. magazine for for many years so yeah the first question i usually get is how did a fortune magazine writer end up writing dating books and if you care, if you want me to answer that, I will. <laughs> I, I know that answer. It's because you were wondering why some of your most talented and attractive female professional friends were always griping about meeting men, right? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and, and even there, and not just my friends, my coworkers at Fortune. I mean, the uh -huh. editorial staff at Fortune was was and probably still is more women than men. Oh. And all the men were basically married like me and, and the women who I can honestly say had more going for them dating wise than, mm -hmm. than we did. Uh, the, you know, they, they had these like dating horror stories and I, I couldn't figure out why dating seemed so much harder for women, particularly successful, educated women than for men. So are these books really for, uh, you call it at one point it says high achievers. So is this for high achieving kind of professional women, I think? Yeah, I, I would. So, um, so make your move kind of, picks up where the first book datanomics left off and the 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 problem i identified in the first book was you know for the past 20 30 years we've had one third more women than men graduate from college uh, and not just in the u.s really like in every western country wow um, so what is and, that numbers wise is one third that means about, about 30 30 to 35 percent yeah basically in college and in the post-college dating pool, there are four women for every three men. Now, obviously, this wouldn't matter so much if we were more open-minded about whom we date and eventually marry, but we aren't. Um, there's College grads generally want to date and marry other college grads, and, and both men and women feel this way. Is this a trend like the men? It's uh, go, the numbers are going down since you wrote the first book or is it stayed stable? I, I think they've gotten a little worse, but probably not materially worse. Oh. It's still it's still 33, 34 percent. I mean, it varies country to country. It, this is not like a policy problem. This is a mm -hmm. uh, and we can talk about it if you want. And this is actually That's a whole nother episode of why <laughs> why that's happening. It's, it's a brain science thing that, that girls uh, brains mature faster than boys' brains, and as a result, the girls are better at schoolwork. Wow. That's a really important topic, though, because is it also the way that we are teaching school, and it might be lopsided and unfair to boys and discouraging them? So that's a whole nother episode, right? Anyway, yeah. so there's this trend. There's this trend. And, and yeah, in the first book, I have some regrets, let's put it that way. I mean, the, the, the first book, I, it's really more pop science than an, a dating advice book. And I had this really snooty view towards the whole self-help genre. Mm -hmm. Like I, I, I thought I was a serious journalist and the idea of putting myself out there as the love doctor, <laughs> like just was not, it was not something I wanted mm -hmm. to do. Um, but in hindsight, that was a mistake because um, Women would show up at my my lectures, my my book events, and I, I thought the whole knowledge is power thing would be mm -hmm. enough that that women would be relieved to hear that it's not all in their heads. Uh, there really aren't enough good men, and they can stop listening to their moms griping about mm -hmm. them being not so good at dating. Um, but what I discovered is 
women still wanted me to, they would still say, okay, thank you. I'm glad it's not in my head. Now tell me what to do. <laughs> and, and I didn't, I, I didn't have a good Because they're smart women. To they're achievers. They want an action plan. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And I, I, I did not have an action plan. And because I didn't have an action plan, some of the women who found the book, the book most interesting also told me it was incredibly depressing. Oh. Because, because I didn't have like any hope, any strategies. I, I identified this enormous problem uh -huh. and the book got a ton of publicity and it, it, um, it shined a spotlight on this, this huge problem that exists in the dating pool of not enough educated men. Mm -hmm. But I didn't really offer any solutions to the problem. I mean, I was much more interested in solving the boy problem in our schools mm -hmm. than I was the dating problem for, for educated mm -hmm. women. And the new book, Make Your Move, is my attempt to sort of do what I should have done in the first book, which is kind of offer hope, offer ideas and strategies for how single women who are struggling with all this can still beat the rough mm. odds. Okay, so we're going to get to some of those solutions, right? But what about yep. for men? Like, I think that the first book was pretty good for men, too, if they wanted to read it. <laughs> it's like a lot of good yeah, statistics no, I mean, in there. It, I, I, I think... <laughs> Yeah, it, it bodes well for men. <laughs> um, but I, a lot of the men I interviewed for Datanomics, they, they resisted this idea that the reason they were having such success was just because of a numbers game. They, I mean, they thought it was them. I mean, they thought that they were special. Oh. They were <laughs> that they were they, they were deserving of all of all this attention, and particularly as the men aged into their thirties uh -huh. uh, and early forties. The numbers became better for the men, and I can talk through why. Um, uh, but basically, if a guy who has a decent job and is moderately good looking remains single into their thirties, the dating pool just becomes that more favorable. Really? And I can run. I can run through the the why if you're yeah, interested. Yeah, let's run through it real quick. Why? Okay. So, Juna, do you remember playing musical chairs yes. as a kid? <laughs> okay. Do you remember how in the in the first round of musical chairs, when there are twenty five players and twenty four chairs, you, you really have to be not be paying attention to not get a chair in the first round, yeah. right? Like, I mean, every, I mean, yeah. Um, but once you get to the last round of musical chairs, you have a fifty percent chance of losing the game. So each round, every time one chair and one player is removed, that your chances of losing in the next round increase. And this is what's happening in the dating pool, um, particularly in obvious. Again, this wouldn't matter if we were more open minded, but there's been this simultaneous trend towards assortative mating, which is college grads only marrying other college grads. Mm. Um, so so imagine a dating game of musical chairs in which you have 40 women and 30 men, which is essentially what young women young college grads are graduating into dating wise, you know, if you're in your 20s. And the man is the chair. <laughs> the man is the chair. Yes. The, yeah. The, the woman is the, is the, is the woman and the man is the chair. Uh, so, but, but we're, we're going to, we're going to take away the chairs. We're just going to talk real people, 40 women, 30 guys. Um, once half of the women, once 20 of the women marry 20 of the men, the ratio in the remaining pool of singles becomes 20 women and 10 men. So halfway through, we've gone from a four to three ratio to a two to one ratio of women to men. Um, once five more couples pair off, you go from 20 to 10, 
to 15 to 5. So you have a 3 to 1 ratio of single women to single men. So what happens is the longer people remain single in, the, in today's mm -hmm. dating market, the, the better it is for the educated men and the worse it is for educated women. Mm. And that's why as New Yorkers mm -hmm. and, uh, and other of your listeners who live in, in these big cosmopolitan cities, we all know these women who have everything going for them dating-wise and we're baffled why dating is so hard for them. I mean, they look better at 38 than they did at 22 and, and they have everything going for them. They're fun. They're good company. They're successful. Why should it be so hard? for them to find a half-decent guy, and this is why. Well, New York City is also, you might be dealing with homosexual men population, or y yeah, big urban uh, yeah, centers they, might have more um, LGBTQ, yes. perhaps. Are we talking just marriage among heterosexuals here? So, Are we I, that's what you're covering in the book, right? Okay. <laughs> it, yes, yes, so, yeah. so you do have cities like, Miami and Washington and New York and LA that have outsized populations of, of gay men. Um, and what's interesting from the, from the research on this is that while gay men do tend to move to these cosmopolitan urban centers, uh, queer women do not. Mm. Um, there, there's, less, there's less of a trend of lesbians moving to cities that are supposedly gay friendly. So, so there's, there's actually this, this imbalance within the, the gay community in cities like New York in which you have more gay men moving in, but not, not the same number of queer women. So then you're outnumbered again. In. Okay, so let's get to the juicy parts. So, yep. <laughs> what was your, I mean, we don't want to give away the whole book, but what was your top advice for to follow so, up on uh, the depressed women who read your first book. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, one of the things I did with Make Your Move is I is I interviewed um, all the women I could find who had um, had successful dating stories, mm -hmm. um, and I think. You agreed that we can admit that you, that you and your husband Paul are, are, are two of the people I interviewed for uh, for the book, and we can get to that yes. later. Um, <laughs> I tried to back into it and figure out, okay, what made dating easier for these people, and what can readers learn? And one theme that kept recurring over and over again—not uh, the only one—but but a lot of the women who found mm -hmm. dating easier were willing to make the mm. first move. Uh, and not all of them, but it actually jibed with the science on this, which shows that men are increasingly open to women making the first move and often want women to make the first move. Mm. And you can kind of see culturally why this is changing. I and mean, if you think about it, pretty much every best-selling dating Bible that's been written over the past 30 years, from the rules to ignore the guy, get the guy, um, they all advocate this very complicated version of playing hard to get. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And they push this idea that if you seem too interested in the guy, he'll be less interested in you. And the, the message these books want young women to send to young men basically boils down to not interested means keep mm. trying. 
I wasn't dating in 1970. <laughs> you weren't dating in 1970. So I don't know if this worked back then. But think about how this plays out in the post-Me Too era, right? Like the whole not interested means keep trying message mm. does not work. And if there's one... I'm not saying guys have learned the lessons of Me Too as fast as we should have. Mm -hmm. We haven't. Mm -hmm. But I do think most guys understand nowadays that if you're talking to a woman at a party and she doesn't seem so interested in the conversation, or if you're texting her and she's not returning your text messages, or if she, ge if she generally seems disinterested, mm -hmm. the correct response is not to assume she's playing hard to not get. Not to pursue, yeah. <laughs> it, it, it's to leave her alone. So all of right? these books you're saying is kind of outdated now. There's been a big cultural shift. Yes. And, and, the, and, the, and the guys are gun shy and they're just not sure. Or maybe they do. have so many choices. <laughs> they, have, they have choices, but yes, they have choices, but it's harder for them to figure out, particularly for the younger men, yeah. who I think are especially anxious, especially yeah. awkward. Um they're not sure what to do. And I think this is why for a 23-year-old guy, it's much easier for them to log on to Twitter and try a line out on Twitter with a complete stranger than it is to ask out a woman who who he knows and actually likes. Or out like on a Tinder or... Right, because in real life, mm -hmm. he's worried about saying or doing the wrong thing. Mm -hmm. And in Tinder, it's all anonymous. Mm -hmm. So he can, he can screw is up it? on Tinder. Oh, I don't know. I mean, basically, I mean, it's, yeah, I mean, it's the person you're interacting with is not part of your social sphere. She's not part of your, your daily life. You're not going to so, run into them if you, you something exactly. goes wrong at the cafeteria. Right. right. And I, I just think there's, particularly among the Gen Z types, and you know this, mm -hmm. that, that there's this, <laughs> this fear of awkwardness, mm, right? Okay. Um, that, and it's not just the men, it's the girls too, that, that that they're just worried about doing or saying the wrong thing. But the thing about dating is it requires a little bit of risk taking. I mean, the, I mean, just think about physical touching, which is kind of verboten these days. Mm -hmm. But, but there's something about, you know, a woman who touches a guy's face, or you're holding hands at a movie theater. And th th these little acts of physicality, like used to be really important to building a connection and you mean flirting in flirt yeah okay. well physical yeah thing. yes but Which they were often pre they were often preludes to a first kiss and that's because touching um releases hormones that that kind of you know reduce anxiety. okay but let's go back to the the internet part of it so like yeah. dating apps you know approaching people that you don't know that you don't see in your normal life right yeah is much yeah. easier is what you're saying but in your research, you found that that those apps maybe overblow the the success rate yeah. of the the matches. Right. Yeah, I mean, it seems easier. Yeah, I mean, you can do it from your couch. Mm -hmm. um, you can pre-screen for all these things that you think are important, like height and income, and whether he's a dog person or a cat person. All these things you can like check off these boxes mm -hmm. and seemingly find the the perfect guy. Um, or or gal, um, but the problem is this isn't how human beings evolved to connect with each other. Human beings um, bond through shared experience, mm. and mm -hmm. um, nobody turns on a computer to find a best friend, right? 
those two relationships, your soulmate and your best friend, really shouldn't be all that different. So if you wouldn't turn on a computer to find a best friend, why do you think it would be such a great idea and so easy to turn on an app to find a life partner or a soulmate? And I, and I, I'm going to acknowledge that there are reasons to use dating apps that have nothing to do with finding a, a soulmate, <laughs> you know, and, and, and that's fine. Mm -hmm. But but I'm people who buy dating books tend to be looking for life partners, and that's that's my, you my audience. Quote in this book the stats about where you meet people and how long these relationships last. Right? Do you want to go yeah, over those so, stats? Yeah, yeah. So there's this professor at Stanford University, Michael Rosenfeld, and Rosenfeld. If you Google him, you'll see he's been quoted a lot as kind of a backer of online dating. Mm. He, he, he considers online dating to be generally a net positive. The thing is, if you dig into his scholarly report mm -hmm. and into the appendix mm -hmm. in table three, <laughs> I mean, he, um, <laughs> you know, he, he has this table in which the headline is breakup rates not much influenced by how couples meet. Now, I think I have a very different definition of not much than he does. So, so he, he found that the, the one-year breakup rate for couples who meet online is 16%. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to compare that to the, the other ways of meeting he discussed that there are the ones that I endorse in Make Your Move. So meet through friends or family. The, the one-year breakup rate is 9%. And again, that's compared to 16% for mm -hmm. online dating. Uh, meet, meet as neighbors, the breakup rate over one year is 8%. Meet as co-workers, which is my favorite way of mm -hmm. meeting somebody and something I know we'll talk about later. Um, the breakup rate for co-workers over one year is 6%. Meet in college, it's also mm -hmm. 6%. Meet in grade school, which is actually how my literary mm. agent met her husband. Um, uh, the breakup rate mm -hmm. is 5%. And meet in church, the, the one-year breakup rate is only mm. 1%. And by church, I assume he's talking about houses okay. of worship generally, not, not Christian churches in, okay. in particular. So, so, so you can see that um, these online relationships are less mm -hmm. durable. And again, I think that's because this isn't really how, how people connect with each other. These, the, these shared experiences that we have with one another kind of become the mortar for... Um, deeper connections. There are these stories that we love to tell and retell, and the stories themselves make make us almost more invested in the relationship itself. And I know that you, you and Paul have this wonderful story about how you guys met, and I'm sure you enjoy telling the story. Um, well, a, a couple who meets kind of in a, in a mechanical way mm -hmm. on Tinder and exchanges cautious text messages <laughs> for a week before fact-checking each other's life story, meeting for coffee, but also creating an escape plan with your friends just to make sure, you know, in case it goes south, they know where you are. Well, th that is not a recipe for falling in life <laughs> or falling in love. So I want you to talk about that lecture you were telling me about when you visited a bunch of college students. And we're going to say that in your book, you suggest that you meet and date people that you're around physically, right? So, yeah, and I totally yeah. agree with so, that, honestly, because I, I have students who are at, you know, schools, and I always say, these people around you have already been vetted for similar interests. <laughs> exactly, yeah. And, and it's the same yeah. thing with the workplace. Although I mean, sometimes you, I wonder that... about two lawyers together or, <laughs> two, or two psychotherapists together. <laughs> that but could but be I get hard. that, but if you... Yeah, I mean, it, I mean, if you work in a law firm or if you work for 
Google, you can assume that, that these employers have done yeah. some vetting. <laughs> um, okay. But, but so anyway, I, was, uh, I have a friend or a friendly acquaintance who's an English professor at uh, Rollins College in Florida. And Rollins has this interesting uh, requirement. So all the graduating seniors are required to take a kind of a life skills class, an mm -hmm. adulting class. That's a nice idea. Um, yeah, I actually yeah. think it's a great idea. And she teaches one of these classes, and one of the topics they cover is relationships and dating. And she had read a review copy of Make Your Move, and she asked me to talk to the class. I explained my misgivings about online dating. Um, I discussed the breakup rate that we just ran through. There's another study that shows the couples who initially meet face-to-face -face are 25% more likely to report feelings of closeness than mm -hmm. people who initially meet online. So there's all this data showing that um, that it's easier to make a, a connection with somebody, a real human connection with somebody face-to-face -face than online. So at the end of the class, this young woman asked a question. And she, she said, look, um, I hear what you're saying, but essentially, it, how the heck am I supposed to meet somebody if not through a dating <laughs> app? So... There were, you know, we, we were doing this on Zoom and we went into Brady Bunch mode or I put <laughs> my, my, uh, my screen on Brady Bunch mode. And there, there were 30 kids in the class. And I said, OK, I'm going to ask a question to the whole class. I want to see a show of hand. And the question I asked was, do you have somebody in your real world life, somebody who you know and like, who's single and whom you're attracted to? Is there somebody like that who you've ever wondered about dating? 30 kids in the class, 30 boxes in my screen, 30 hands mm. went up. So if you already know somebody single who you like and are comfortable with and are attracted to, why not just ask out him or her? I mean, why, why start from zero with a complete stranger on a dating app when you could almost be halfway there practically in terms of compatibility by asking out somebody who you already know reasonably So what'd they about. say to that? <laughs> you know, they, yeah, I mean, there was some nodding. It was the, it was the last, it was the, the very last question of the class. So uh, there wasn't a whole lot of discussion, but, but, but actually I have another, another example of that. I was on a, um, I was on a Christian dating podcast. One of the hosts was a woman in her 30s who'd had really only bad experiences using dating apps. And I basically asked her the same mm -hmm. question that I asked the kids at Rollins College. Was there a man that she knew from her daily life who's single, whom, whom she'd ever wondered mm -hmm. about dating? And she said there was, and I suggested that she take a chance and ask him out on a date and see what happened. So I recently got an email from her, and she had taken my advice, and this verbatim is what she wrote to me. <laughs> Quote, we are now dating. Um, we, we had mutual friends and interests, and I messaged him on Twitter, and we go out on dates once a week. Still very early into things, but the story thus far seems to highlight the wisdom of your book. The person I'm dating and I have both reflected that our dates have been so much better than anything mm. we found through the dating apps. So, I mean, obviously that's anecdotal. It's only one story. For me, it was That's it was a really nice, nice story. What about during the pandemic, though? So I just want to make a point that we're talking about apps. We're not talking about like meeting people on Zoom because I think that's happening now where people actually meet on Zoom and it's like a one-on-one -on -one situation. Or I've met excellent friends over the pandemic online only because we were in the same group of 
you know, something we signed up for that we had mutual interest in. And I've made some really great friends, which is funny, <laughs> you know, and I've probably spent more time with them now because we were in the pandemic. So for those young people out there who are single and, you know, meeting people on Zoom, that's a possibility. We're talking about apps. That's totally different. Definitely a possibility. And I, yeah, and I, and I, and I don't want to give the impression that I'm entirely negative on dating apps or online dating. And in fact, there are some niche dating apps that I write about in the book that I mm. like a lot. And I also talk about, you know, dating during COVID times. And I realized, just as you said, that um, online dating may be the only dating people are comfortable with right now. I I'm all in favor of making the best of a bad situation. But one of the challenges I have as an author <laughs> is that this is a book and not a magazine yeah. article. So I'm not I'm not writing for the here and now. I mean, I'm I'm assuming, hoping that mm. life six months mm -hmm. from now will not be the same as it is today or six years from now. Um, I mean, I assume that we'll get back to some <laughs> kind of a life that's more familiar. <laughs> while I acknowledge and I talk about COVID times dating in the book, it's not it's not the focus because I, I, I don't want the book to immediately become dated once we all get vaccinated. <laughs> we become dated, become dated once we all get vaccinated. Or maybe you swab the other person before you go on a date. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, but, but, but you're right. I mean, certainly there are ways to, pe to meet people. But again, I'm talking about people that I met through common interest uh, or like an organization yes. that I belong to. So that's different also from just total strangers. Right. Yeah, it's, it's totally different. And, and I mean, in my... And while I realize that that in these times um, it seems so much easier to just go on Match.com or Tinder and to find somebody, if you look at the the studies that have been done, there was a Pew Research report that came out last year, and it found that the majority of women think dating mm. has only gotten harder. Two thirds of women have experienced harassment on the apps and 20% of women on dating apps say they've been That's threatened horrible. with physical violence. So, you know, my, my thought is, okay, if there was a singles bar where one fifth of the women who walked in were threatened with violence, That's like, awful. who would go back there? The breakup rates are higher. It's harder to connect with somebody yeah. and there are these safety problems. So to <laughs> me, it's like a three. Okay. Strikes. So let's recap. So the first thing <laughs> you know. is the title of the book, make your move. So women should not be afraid to make their move. Men, no longer yeah. find that, or if they ever did, they don't find that to be a turnoff, obviously. <laughs> it no. might, you might be even helping them along. And what I've, what I've discovered is that when you, when I make this argument, the people who love books like The Rules, mm -hmm. they basically say, oh, I would never <laughs> chase a man. And this word chase is so antithetical to what I'm talking about, but it's like a scare tactic that, that, um, but that's that kind of old fashioned maybe. R so right. that brings to mind an episode that I heard on Guy Raz's How I Built This, one of my favorite podcasts. It was a conversation with Vicki Sai. She's the founder of Tasha Skincare that's sold to Unilever for hundreds of millions of dollars. And she was talking about her husband and how she asked him out and he initially said no. There was also a New York Times article about their courtship. It says here, in 1998, Vicki Sai, then 20, met Eric Bevan, then 21, at a college dance. She was a junior at Wellesley. He was a senior at MIT. She wanted everything to do with him. He wanted nothing to do with her. Six months of determination from Miss Sai made that change. I kept asking him out. He turned me down. 
I tried talking to him. He acted disinterested. I thought he was cute. I'm not used to taking no for an answer. and I think I wore him down, said Miss Sai. They have now been married for 15 years and five months and have a daughter together. And they're, they're partners in their business. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But that is a great story. My point is that, that what I'm talking about rarely involves the same kind of persistence that used to be expected of our male suitors. Mm-hmm. And I'll just give you a simple story. A young woman I know, she actually used to be our Saturday night babysitter when, when she was in college. So I've gotten to know her reasonably well over the years. And Laura and I have kept in touch with her. And I started telling her about the book. And just as a little context, the thing to know about her is while she is quite attractive, the bigger thing with her is that she has this outsized personality. She's like an extreme extrovert. Um, she probably should be doing stand-up if she wasn't mm-hmm. you know, doing something else. Um, <laughs> um, and as you know, some guys are a little bit intimidated by the extrovert thing. Um, and that has... Mm-hmm. You know, for her, that had been a little bit of a dating problem over, you know, you know in her 20s. So she told me the story about how she was at a party. Uh, this was a story about how she met her current boyfriend. And she was at a party. The two of them were talking. And she could tell that, like, he was a little unsure what to do. Mm-hmm. So she just blurted out, so are you going to ask for my number? And that was it. <laughs> she just opened the door wide enough for him to feel comfortable walking through. Mm-hmm. He didn't, she didn't have to buy him a beer or ask him out on a proper date or grab his ass or anything like that. <laughs> uh, all she had to do was open the door wide enough for him to feel comfortable about walking through. And that's it. And, and, and that's all I'm talking about, really, um, when I suggest women make the first move. Because the reality is, it is so much easier and there's so so much less you have to do as a woman making the first mm-hmm. move than traditionally we've come to expect from our male suitors who are supposed to display this over-the-top persistence. Okay, so this is a big switch in culture, so don't be shocked if you're teenage girls start to ask (laughs) boys out, right? (laughs) So it might be a real um, switch for some of us, but... And then the second rule is meet people where you are, right? Maybe in person, hopefully. Yeah, yeah. So I'm, as you, as we talked about earlier, I'm a financial writer by trade. And one of my, um, one of my favorite financial books is One Up on Wall Street by Peter Lynch, the, um, the, uh, the Fidelity fund manager. Uh And his, um, his motto was always buy what you know, like, you know, you as a, as a mom and pop investor, he, he would argue that mom and pop investors are better off buying companies they deal with on a daily basis. So, Mm He gives the example of he had a friend who was raving about what at the time was a brand new product from Hanes, these legs pantyhose. Um, <laughs> and he ended up making a killing investing in Hanes just because one of his friends told him about, about legs. <laughs> so the argument I make in Make Your Move is that the same ideas that apply to buy what you know when it comes to investing <laughs> also apply to date who you know when okay. it comes to dating. As I write in the book, my favorite date who you know is dating in the workplace because there's really nobody who you know better 
And there's no vet, there's no better vetting process than working with somebody eight, nine, 10, 11 hours a day. I mean, your, your personality traits are really on full display. I mean, if you're kind and empathetic in the workplace, you're probably gonna be those things in a relationship. If you're um, deceitful um, and unkind in the workplace, you're probably not gonna make a great boyfriend or girlfriend either. I kind of feel like this this is why the workplace is such a great way to to meet people. And so you can observe them over wide ranges of situations. Right, basically. right. I mean, if you're, you know, if you're spending all this time with them, you also basically know whether you're compatible. So where did you meet uh, your wife? At school? So, or yeah, so Laura and I met, right? met in college. Um, oh, okay. And, and I so can't that's say, a great place too, right? It is, yeah. I mean, it's, yeah. it's a similar vibe in that you're spending all this time together. Now, we mm -hmm. weren't dating throughout our time in college, but I didn't, you know, Laura and I knew each other from literally my first day on campus, or our mm. first days on campus. So we knew each other for two plus years before we ever started dating. Um, wow. And I, I, I so don't rule anyone out. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I, I, I think I, I think I sometimes joke that we were dating for two weeks before we went out on an actual date. So, yeah. <laughs> so, well, they can guess uh, who um, I am in the book, but Paul and I met in a hospital. When, but I was a medical student. Well, now I I told the story of who I am in the book. <laughs> but I have to say that we were on call, and neither of us had actually maneuvered that. It, we were on call together all the time. Neither of us manipulated that schedule. So there was something something mysterious as well. But we did end up getting to know each other very well over all those calls that we took together. Right. And by the, by the time you guys actually went out on the proper date, I bet you guys felt you were, I know from what you've told me, that you guys felt like you were almost halfway there, right? Oh, yeah. It was so yeah. easy. It's interesting. I don't even remember who asked anything. Like, we just sort of moved... Right. started going out we moved in together i don't think we really neither of us i don't remember one of us saying hey would you like to go out on a date with me on friday <laughs> night like that. It, yeah. was no, it, was like, it was organic I guess we, it's organic it was just, right yeah yeah we didn't even talk right. about it it almost just right. happened it was right if you think about like our favorite tv couples like you know, so many of the men in the workplace, whether it's Sam and Diane on Cheers, which is dating myself and ourselves, <laughs> or more recently, like Jim and Pam on The Office. I mean, if, if Jim and Pam had met on Tinder, it probably would have been the most boring first date ever. I mean, they never would have connected. <laughs> That's true. Uh, that is true. One of the arguments I make in the book is that it actually matters how we connect, that you could have two people who are very compatible on paper, but if they meet in this really mundane way, they're not going to connect oh, in the same way that they would if they met in the workplace or they met in church or they met as part of a bird watching club or whatever, whatever kind of shared experience or shared uh, interest they had together. It's, it's that it's that. So going through an yes, experience yes, together, shared experience. Yeah. OK, like if I met Paul on a bus somewhere. It just wouldn't it, be the same as well, if we had taken calls together. I mean, every I mean, if there, other night. if there was a fender bender involving the bus, and you had this like fun, <laughs> some sort of emotional connection to like that situation. Yeah, I mean, I mean, there's, there's a. This is a man making the first move, but you know, I've been tweeting a ton about the book. You know, I'm spending a lot of time on, mm -hmm. on social media promoting the book, and when talking about some of this stuff, there was a guy who wrote back to me on Twitter, and he told me this, you know, in 
however many characters are less. This is really nice story. <laughs> uh, he, he lives in Seattle with his wife and he met his wife uh, out, you know, in sort of the outside balcony, you know, the railing area on a ferry. Because you've been to Seattle, there were lots of ferries taking you from place to place. And he just said there was something about the hair, the wind blowing through her hair and making eye contact with her. And he just, this wasn't his nature to like chat up women on ferries, but he did. <laughs> and they've been now married 20 years. And as you can imagine, this fairy story to them is somewhat magical, you know, like the same way mm -hmm. your story about meeting on rotation in the hospital has this kind of um, poetic quality to it. And the telling and retelling of these How We Met stories is actually really important to the the success of a relationship. But in the case of the fairy, they're just total strangers that, that met on a ferry. <laughs> yeah, the, I mean, this yeah. was on Twitter. So I think there was, uh, I think there might have been a, uh, like a three page okay. version of, of but there's something about meeting in a real world space, because there's so much you can learn about another person just by being in their mm -hmm. physical presence, mm -hmm. and looking at their body language, hearing the intonation in their voices, the vibe, you get a vibe that you don't get. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I was on a dating podcast a few weeks ago with a very young audience and one of the hosts was telling me a story about going out on an online date and being surprised by the sound of his voice. Mm. And to me, my reaction is, why would you ever go out on a date with somebody you've never actually at least had a phone <laughs> conversation with? Because there is so much you can learn just from mm -hmm. the sound of somebody's true, voice. True, true. Okay, so the third point I want to make is that you do talk about dating outside of your socioeconomic education level. Yep. So you suggest yep. to women to open up their <laughs> expectations as far as... Yeah, I, I like to preface this by saying, I'm not saying that, that women are fussy and men are not mm -hmm. about this stuff. The, the research shows that, that men are actually just as choosy about women's education levels as women are about men's mm -hmm. and in fact women are more likely to marry somebody with le with a lesser education level than men are mm. so this notion <laughs> that that men will marry like you know the first cute cocktail waitress that comes <laughs> along it's just not true okay. i mean of course there's highly educated cocktail waitresses especially in new york and big city areas and of course no offense <laughs> to cocktail waitresses Men are just as choosy when it mm -hmm. comes to socioeconomics and education as women are. Mm -hmm. So I'd like to get that out of the way because otherwise it feels like I'm picking on the on the fussy women but not on the fussy okay. men. Okay. Uh, no, that's um, good to know. There is a myth to dispel about that. Yes. Yeah. Um, but fairly, no, I mean unfairly, mm -hmm. um, men don't get punished for this choosiness just because th there is this vast supply, so to speak, of educated women. Mm. So if they, if men discriminate when it comes to dating, it doesn't really come back to haunt them the way it does with women. So that, so this is why, you know, my argument in both books, in both the first book and in Make Your Move, is that look, if there's too many men in the non-college dating pool and if there were too many women in the college educated dating pool it seems fairly inevitable to me that these two groups will find each other mm -hmm. and i do not believe that a college degree makes you a better husband or a better wife and i 
you know, I call these relationships mixed collar, mm. you know, white collar, blue collar, mixed collar mm -hmm. relationships. And because I have friends who have mixed collar marriages, mixed collar relationships, I, I tend to get a little peeved whenever I hear people describe this as settling or compromising or dating down. Because one woman I'm thinking of right now, because she was a, a friend of Laura in in college actually a friend of mine as well but more Lawrence who like after college there would be all these like teary late night phone calls to Laura about the latest you know jerk dermatologist who uh, who mistreated her mm -hmm. and she's a she's a high school English teacher in upstate New York um, and she'd always been friends with the guy who was like the head of physical plant at the high school mm -hmm. like the the maintenance guy who was in charge of the sprinkler system and the lighting system and he had asked her out a couple times before and she always said no because in her head that wasn't the kind of guy she was supposed to end up with but after one particularly bad breakup she went to him and said so can i still take you up on that dinner offer and they've been married 25 years mm. he is amazing mm -hmm. um uh, he's a great husband, a great father. And I'll tell you, if anybody suggested to their son that mom had dated down or married down or settled or something, I think my head would explode. <laughs> so I, I think all of us would be better off if we were more open-minded about whom we date and marry. Okay. So you're talking about cross collar, blue collar, having more traditional yeah, so, hours. So, so I'll, give you, I'll give you an example that I'm guessing you and Paul can relate to, and mm -hmm. that is that, that um, back when I was at Fortune and Laura was in her first get, you know, stay at the U.S. Attorney's Office and later um, you know, as a partner in a big law firm, Laura and I used to have this daily negotiation you know, at around 5 o'clock or 5.30 about who had to be home in time to relieve the nanny. Mm -hmm. This was always kind of a little bit of a battle. Right, uh, like it, not battle, but but it was you know it was a it was a daily yeah. conversation. And it wasn't easy, and as you know, and as mm -hmm. probably a lot of your listeners know, it's not easy melding two two demanding yeah, yeah two demanding careers. careers. Yeah. Uh -huh. um, this is why I kind of feel like having one person be an electrician and the other one's the lawyer or the doctor. Or me teaching yeah, exactly. you writing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. yeah. No, and, and just to finish the story with me and Lauren yeah. is that eventually something had to give. And yeah. and this is why I kind of, um, I went into first, I did some ghostwriting. I ghost wrote a book and now I've written my own books because, you know, I can do this mm -hmm. from the library, which is where I used to write, you know, but now, <laughs> you know, now I can't go to the library anymore. But it, somebody's career has to give. And in that case, it was me. Um, yes. And I just think yes. it's easier if you do, don't have two people with two really demanding careers. Okay, so you're also talking about a shift in culture as far as who's staying home with the kids now. So that's something that's been changing over time. There's a lot more dads who are more flexible and now especially with um, remote work. So you're talking more about like cross-collar and then the dads can also be the person who makes less of the big paycheck. That should be something we should be open-minded to. Yeah, I'm not, you know, I don't really write about stay-at-home dads in the in the book, but but I will say that you know, right. in recent years, um, I mean, I've certainly been the lead parent in our house uh, because mm -hmm. my schedule is more flexible. But to your point, maybe a year ago, I was on Metro North, which is the commuter train system here in the New York area, and I was sitting in one of those, um, you know, those seats that are across from each other on the train. Mm -hmm. um, 
And there were two women who were probably age 30-ish who were talking to each other. And one of them said to the other, when are you and Jack gonna have a second kid? And without even missing a beat, the response was, well, it depends on, on how long Jack is willing to stay home with the mm. baby. And I loved it. Like, I, I mm -hmm. love the fact that they had this very matter-of-fact conversation that, that you know, when you and I were in our 20s, if we had heard that conversation, we, we, it would have been like a... Who's Jack? Jacqueline? Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> I mean, it, okay. it, it would have been almost incomprehensible. Yeah. So I think your book is like a cultural statement. So I, I love that. I love the book. I love the title, Make Your Move. I think that it's really about talking about how everything is changing. It's totally acceptable for a woman to make the first move. It's even welcome, maybe. And then to meet people in your own profession, but also open yourself up to mixed color possible relationships. You've nailed it. Right? Yep. <laughs> Those are the top three things. <laughs> Any other big advice? I mean, the, the only other thing I'd point out is that while the culture is changing, mm -hmm. a lot of the people who advocate kind of traditional dating strategies and uh -huh. dating roles, uh -huh. they, they like to say, oh, it's biology. It's, you know, mm. human biology kind of pre-programs men to chase mm -hmm. and women to be nothing more than passive filters mm. of male advances. Mm -hmm. There's a book out there, uh, an incredible book called, the title is Inferior. And it's written by Angela Saini, who's a science writer in, uh, in London. It's this masterpiece in which she explores all the ways that science has gotten women wrong over the years. You know, so much of this notion that men are hardwired to chase and women are supposed to be passive filters of male advances, mm -hmm. so much of that is built on complete junk science mm. that's been debunked over the past 10, 15 years, mostly by female evolutionary bi biologists mm -hmm. at, at places like UCLA and other, other top institutions, showing that the science that all these male biologists have been touting over the years was incredibly wrong mm. and it's kind of confusing how this kind of junk science ever got elevated to canon in the first place interesting i'm gonna have to get that book <laughs> it's a it's it's a shocking read uh, and it's 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 really well written too i mean not as well written as make your move but <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> thank you so much john i'm so happy no that problem. you were able to give these women advice or and men too i think men should read it too <laughs> <laughs> I, I think everybody should read it. <laughs> I gave it to my son and he's in college. Awesome. So thank you Excellent. so much. Thank you for following up with practical advice and plus the science and the real numbers behind what your advice is. Yes. <laughs> okay. Thank you, John. All right. See ya. Thanks for having me on. That was John Berger, author of Make Your Move, The New Science of Dating and Why Women Are in Charge. It's time to flip the script. Find out more about him and order his book, at johnberger.com. Link is in the show notes. Send us your questions, and you can also shape the contents of this podcast by signing up at mindbodyspace.com forward slash podcast. When you opt in, you'll get extras from episodes like cheat sheets, worksheets, and special tips just for our newsletter subscribers. You'll also get information on our neuroscience-powered planner and online courses for kids, parents, and educators. If you appreciate the content and want to help, the absolute best thing you can do is to share. Text or email your friends, 
share on social media a link to your favorite episode, or use the sharing links on your newsletter. Good old-fashioned talking works, too. Please share this podcast with all your friends, family, coworkers, anyone who believes in the scientific method and are curious about natural ways to boost performance, health, mental, and physical resilience for themselves or their kids. Thank you so much. And until next time, this is Dr. Juna wishing you and your family wellness.